This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Omidyar Network. Read their latest point of view, Beyond Encryption, our vision for trustworthy messaging in a viral world at omidyar.com. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakreski, a tech policy reporter here at The Post, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today on the disinformation crisis. My first guest today is Will Hurd, a former Texas congressman. He is also a member of the Aspen Institute Commission on the Information Disorder. Congressman, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much for being here. Kat, it's a pleasure to be on, and please call me Will. Thank you so much, Will. And just to get this discussion going and really highlight what the stakes are, could you tell us a little bit about what disinformation is? Look, one of the ways that I like to describe it is this is this increasing disagreement on facts. It's a, a blurring of the lines between uh, fact and fiction. It's an, it's an increasing volume of, of influence. And th- there is there's an also a, a complete degradation of trust in institutions um, that have been, um, you know, important for for since the founding of our of our country, and that's institutions at the government level, at the federal, all the way down to the local level, um, to academia, to the media, and all of these things. Uh, Rand Corporation calls it truth to decay. Um, you know, all of these things combine to create an environment where a, a falsehood can can travel faster. Um, than 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 the truth, right? And and this is not a new phenomenon. There was a there was a British um, sociologist back in like the 1700s that basically said uh, you know a a, a fact can a, a, a falsehood can travel faster before the truth can put its pants on, right? Um, and so so this is the environment we're in. Oh, and by the way, our adversaries, nation states, are using. Um, this uh, this discord, this these frictions, these fractures within our our, our society and our communities, um, in order to propagate their own message and to erode trust in America um, with our allies, not just in Europe and Eastern Europe, uh, but all over all over the world. And I want to get to those national security implications, but first, do you think it's possible? Given the environment we're in today, to contain the disinformation crisis, it's going to be—it's incredibly difficult, right? Um, especially with with platforms and tools that are able to propagate these messages. When when we look at, um, you know, the the how information disorder has evolved from a 2016 to the 2020 election, the 2016 election, the 2020 election, um, it was it was pretty intense. And, and what we're seeing is, uh, you know, a lot, oftentimes people with the blue check, right, on that are that are verified are the ones that are propagating some of these some of these stories. And we're also seeing um, a picture or an image that's kind of at the grassroots level that gets magnified. And oftentimes um, that picture may be, um, uh, uh, you know, wrong or it's old. And there was a number of those kinds of examples. In, um, from the 2020 election, and, and there's a work that the the election, election integrity partnership um, did called the Long Fuse. It's a it's a it's a great um, analysis structurally 
of, of how some of these how, how some of these messages were, were propagated. And, and what you're seeing in the, the political debate in Washington right now, the far left and the far right sometimes have the same opinions on what should be done about this. A lot of it centers around a Section 230, um, and and um, and they 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 want the action for complete opposite reasons. Um, but I don't know, especially the closer we get to midterm elections, whether you're going to see uh, some level of, of cooperation. If it were to happen, it would probably start in the Senate. And I think it would be in, in a very narrow, it could be in a very narrow way. And I wanted to ask you, you brought up the disinformation that we saw in 2016 and 2020 around the elections. We're heading into a midterm election year and 2024 isn't far away. What is your biggest concern for how disinformation could evolve um, heading into these next election cycles? Look, I, I think the the scary part is where um, uh, the the technology tools that can make deep fakes even harder to detect, right? And so, so now imagine, um, you know, a, a lot of times where you catch deep fakes now is there. It's an it's an original image that's doctored in some form in some way. And, and then you can create an original image. And how are you gonna be able to detect against that? I think the technology is still a little too uh, in, in its infancy um, to be weaponized in, in this upcoming 2022 election. Uh, but, but the reality is 2020 was the most secure election in our history, okay? I think um, CISA, the, um, the, 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 the Department in Homeland Security that helped um, uh, provide federal support to the states. Uh, the states recognize um, the need to make sure that they're protecting the vote counting machines. Um, and so the fact that a lot of these entities are focused um, on this is what has allowed, what allowed 2020 to be the safest and, and, and most secure election. So I feel confident that the, the folks on the ground um, are gonna have the tools to protect that. But the, but the information piece and the weaponization of uh, of information is is not just going to be um, you know a lot of a lot of the platforms trying to say outlaw uh, political advertising uh, well that's not going to be enough to to stop this stop this issue and and and, and to be honest um, this has been going on for since the since the beginning of time and and so um, this is a difficult this is a difficult task and 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 ultimately you know if who should be the arbiter of truth right and um, it's difficult for the federal government to play that role um, in saying this is right or this is wrong. And so that's why we have to have um, uh, media organizations, academics, um, to, to make sure that they're building trust with communities um, so that when people look, they, there's a place they can look and be like, hey, is this fact or fiction? You just mentioned that you don't think political advertising bans will be enough to stem the tide of disinformation online. Are there specific steps that you think the platforms could take before the midterms that would make a difference? I think this is a broader conversation, I, I think, with, with tech policy in general. Oftentimes, when there's some new kind of technology, um, we always say, oh, this is so different. This is so unique. Um, this doesn't fall under the same rules and regulations. But usually, it's like, hey, uh, you know, how do you adapt the current rules and regulations to this thing? Uh, the example I always use is artificial intelligence. Uh, I spend a lot of time on that in, in my current positions. And, and guess what? We have rules on civil liberties, and you can't discriminate against people for the color of their skin. So if the, alg the algorithm shouldn't be able to do that, it should be able to follow the law. And I think um, having a conversation around 
whether these platforms are indeed publishers. And do they have to follow the same rules and regulations that y'all at Washington Post have to follow, uh, that uh, cable networks have to follow? Um, I think that kind of conversation, and, and guess what? If, that, if they were having to hold to those same standards, you would see some behaviors um, ultimately change. Um, and I think this is a broader conversation about how creators um, ultimately get paid as well too. I, I think there's some, some great examples companies like Patreon and, and their model and how they're doing it is, is a potential way. But we have to get this right because um, there's, you know, when we start talking about virtual reality and the interactions uh, within virtual realities, um, we can start having those conversations now as those technologies are in its infancy before it really uh, blows up. And, and so, so yes, I, I think that's a, that's a conversation and debate that, that should be, that we should have. Um, and, and make sure everybody has the same playing field. And on that point of just how quickly this issue is moving, uh, you mentioned before how on both the far right and far left, there's momentum to reform Section 230, the shield that protects tech companies from lawsuits for content that people post on their platforms. I wanted to ask you, do you personally think that Section 230 should be amended? Look, I, I think one of the the ways that we can get, we can make this work is um, if you are open to the public, right? If if your if your if your um, uh, accounts anybody can see it, then you're you should be you should have to follow the same rules and regulations uh, that other journalists and 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 um, uh, publishers have to follow. Uh, now, if you're closed. And the only people that can see you are the people that um, have subscribed to your account. Then I think um, you can say that that's not they're not considered a publisher because they're just talking to their friends. Um, I think that's a model um, that would allow the continued growth and, and use of these tools and use them as a platform uh, for folks to get a message out, um, but also ensure that um, people are, are are that they're behaving in a way that's not eroding society. And sorry, so just to say yes or no, do you think Section 230 should be amended? I, I think there's, there's definitely some changes that can be made to Section 230, and I just, those are the things I think should be, how, how they should be outlined. And um, do you think currently that there is the bipartisan will in Congress to do that, to make those changes? Look, this is not a new topic. I don't think you're gonna see this happen um, two months before primaries start, and, or less than, yeah, two months before, a month and a half before primaries start. And so I, I think, you know, there, there's always been some of these conversations, uh, but I don't see, I don't see a, a lot of, of bipartisanship happening. And I also don't see, uh, looking in the House, um, House leadership is not interested and and working on bipartisan solutions that you know they they run a, a number of things uh down folks uh throat and i think uh, the senate is is going to be consumed um over the next couple of months uh with a number of other issues before they'd ever be able to get to something like this on the topic of tech regulation in congress do you think that the bipartisan antitrust bills have a chance of passing this year um, I'm not familiar with with the nuance and the details. I, I think there are some things like um, when it comes to uh, knowing what software and and you know understanding each line of code. I think those are some those are some some opportunities uh, where things can get passed. 
but 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 major changes. And again, the, the specific legislation that you're talking about, um, I don't I don't know of it. Um, and uh, that's maybe an indication that it's because it's probably unlikely to unlikely to pass because you're not hearing a lot of folks talk about. It. And so, in the absence of action in Congress, do you think that there should be a White House-led federal strategy to address disinformation? So I, I think the example of, of how a federal government responds to disinformation um, is, is probably what's called CVE, countering violent extremism. And we saw this in the height of, of 2014, where um, ISIS was, was inspiring um, you know, young men, teenage boys, um, you know, 6,000 miles away and, and, and inspiring them to, um, to, to, to join their efforts and, and to try to kill innocent people. And, and we knew how that was working. We knew the people that they were, that, that ISIS was targeting. We knew some of the messages and we were able to leverage some of the counter messaging um, to, to, in essence, inoculate a community uh, from some of those messages. And so um, I think that's a, that's a, a type of model that I think um, you know governments um, can use, um, and it, because it starts with education and it starts with making sure uh, people are able to, to to differentiate fact from fiction on on their devices when they read something, and that they're able to tell that something is an opinion uh, versus something that has you know a, a background. Right? When we were all in school and we were doing you know uh, writing papers, this is before Google and the internet. Um, you know, you knew which sources you can use uh, to reference and which ones you couldn't uh, because because they were less authoritative. And so I, I think that's an area uh, where, you know, educating that I think the, the, the federal government executive branch can can do more. And do you think that's an area they can do more even when it's related to domestic issues like elections or the pandemic response when it's not international disinformation? Look, I think I think not only the federal government, but states can do more to educate people on the actual voting process, right? Like, how are those vote counting machines taken, you know, taken care of in in you know when they're not being used? Why does it take um, you know hours um, to tabulate those votes if you're doing it on a machine? You know, understanding uh, what the process is, and that you know, yes, you may be sending in. Um, mail-in ballots, but if you send a mail-in ballot on the last day, uh, the election agency may not receive that for a couple of days, right? And so I think making people, improving people's general awareness of the voting process, right, is is one way uh, to say, oh, if if this, you know, somebody says something crazy on social media, that more people are like, oh, no, that's just, that's not how the actual process works. And I think, I think that's a role that, um, that, you know, is, is important, especially now, um, as we're leading up to election and, and have those conversations before you're in the middle of early voting. And you talked a little bit before about the role of blue checkmark accounts in spreading disinformation. Um, we've seen some prominent social media accounts, um, including former President Trump, um, Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. We've seen those suspended in, in the past year or mm -hmm. so. Um, do you agree with the company's decisions to suspend those accounts? Look, the, these companies should outline what their terms of use are 
and enforce it, right? And so, so, so President Trump and 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 these others have been violating those terms. So, so yes, the company should have the the uh, ability to to do that. And you know, it, what, what's what's I, I think is is frustrating on, on in, in some of these other areas. Um, we oftentimes propagate. Uh, it's not we we focus on some of the blue checks, but let's look at something that's happening today. Um, with the, the Biden administration getting ready to negotiate with the Russians around Ukraine. Well, we, we continue to, to talk about how the Russians are saying uh, they feel threatened on their border. No, this can be de-escalated if the Russians would stop trying to in invade Ukraine. So, so there, there are the, some of those kinds of conversations that I think and propagating that is, is less clear as the, the bullface lies uh, the former president and and other members of Congress have been propagating, and but but in the end, I think these platforms have the ha have the, the the ability and should uh, regulate um, on their own platforms. What do you say to Republicans who view those moves from the companies as silencing conservative voices? Well, I I, I think the data when when you look at. Um, some of the conservative outlets on 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 Facebook, at least, uh, they have way more following than a lot of the mainstream media, even when you combine them. And so, so this notion—I I don't think the facts uh, definitely, you know, play out that way. Um, but but ultimately, I, I think as as elected officials, part of our responsibility is to to you know to provide facts on what's really happening. And, and it's unfortunate, and that's not always the case. Are these accusations of censorship making it harder to address the disinformation crisis? Well, it, it's, it contributes to that erosion of trust that, we, that we're, we're seeing, right? And so, uh, you know, you, you, the, this, 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 this erosion of trust in institutions to include uh, media, to include the scientific community, this didn't just start, you know, recently. This has been going on for 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 decades, and so by by continuing to to stoke that those flames, right, we we further erode uh, those those efforts. And then when it comes time to actually try to um, where we have to work together and and do something like you know come together to deal with a global with a global pandemic that we're go that's going on. Um, two years, um, it's difficult. How are we going to be, like, even some of the conversations around what's happening in, in Ukraine, I keep going back to that because it's it's shocking how some um, in the United States are kind of supportive of the of the Russian position when, when that's just absolutely insane. Uh, now, I, I also hope that the, the Biden administration stays, stays tough on this issue, but when you have some of these, these conversations that that impact our our security. Um, it's difficult to have when that erosion um, happens. Now, look, we should also. It's okay to be critical as as well. And when you see something, but 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 that makes it harder when when you're 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 fomenting um, misinformation, disinformation, and, and outright lies. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today, <laughs> and we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Congressman Will Hurd, for joining us. That was a fascinating discussion. Thanks, Kat. And I'll be back with our next guest, Damian Collins, in just a few minutes. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Hello, I'm Elise Labbitt of American University, and today we're talking about the promise and the peril of private messaging platforms to communicate. Now, in response to the rise in digital surveillance and cybersecurity threats, private messaging platforms have really taken the world by storm. And today, two out of five people are using these real-time chat apps to connect, sending hundreds of billions of private messages daily around the world. But while these platforms have really changed the face of human connection, research shows that they're also being used to spread disinformation and hate-filled ideology. So to further explore the use of these real-time chat apps, I'm joined by Wetha Ben-Hassin. She's a human rights lawyer and principal at the Omid Yar Network, and Rose Jackson, the director of Democracy and Tech Initiative at the Atlanta Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. Ladies, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Rose, let's start with you. Now, the beauty of these apps is that they're encrypted, so we can't see what's what's happening and what people are saying. But talk to me about how these private messaging platforms are being used and what you think are some of the vulnerabilities we need to be aware of. I mean, the most important thing to start with is that they're not always that private. A lot of these apps have features where you can broadcast messages to thousands of people in a group. And so even though we have encrypted messaging, it's not always private messaging. But when we're talking about the encrypted nature of point-to-point -point messaging platforms, it's really important to know that for human rights activists around the world, particularly in authoritarian countries, these tools are essential to their survival. It's the same story for journalists doing important work to safeguard our democracies, but the platforms are also used widely by families around the world trying to stay in touch in different countries. Uh, and of course, what people are thinking about today, and part of why we're having this conversation, the anniversary of January 6th has brought to mind that there are also some pretty bad actors that take advantage of these private messaging spaces to organize. And whether that's domestic extremist groups in the United States who organized on some of these platforms to uh, have an insurrection uh, at the US Capitol or terrorist organizations around the world, it's important that we understand that these messaging platforms are part of the internet and digital ecosystem. And that means that everyone's on them and they're on them for a number of different reasons. Some of those good, some of those very bad. And so it's not all a bad story. It's not all a good story. So Wetha, I know you like to say that encryption doesn't create these problems, it just hides them from us. So what is it about the technology that makes these private messaging platforms hospitable to all of this hate, lies, and propensity, perhaps for violence. That's right, Elise. It is the platforms with other features where we have to focus our attention. Um, these platforms are optimized for scale, virality, and monetization. And the very same features that support these objectives also help facilitate the rapid and large-scale spread of dangerous, distorted, and deceitful content. In fact, modern propaganda campaigns today are specifically engineered for this type of technology. In addition, the ease with which users can now forward messages without verifying their accuracy means mis- and disinformation can spread quickly, secretly, and at significant scale. Now, from the onset, the differentiator between open social media and private messaging platforms has always been that the former serves as a public town square and the latter as a private living room. Some messaging platforms, however, offer users the ability to broadcast and exchange ideas within extremely large groups, and we're talking anywhere from 1,000 to 200,000 people. Now the question becomes, if we're truly optimizing for privacy, why are we sharing content with enough people to fill three Olympic-sized stadiums? 
Look, problems online hardly ever start there and they rarely end there, but it's our imperative to make sure that the design of private messaging platforms are not enabling their spread. So, so Wafa, given that, talk to us about some of the changes that can make these private chat apps more trustworthy and resilient against all of this disinformation. Sure, what we need are targeted tools and thoughtful policy responses. As a free and open society, we cannot resort to polarized and absolutist positions such as attacks on encryption via backdoors or by weakening privacy and security via malware, spyware, or ill-conceived traceability requirements. Studies have shown that such solutions are rarely effective, and in fact, they make us collectively less safe and make private messaging platforms less trustworthy. Instead, what we're pushing for here is a new set of conditions. For instance, more disclosure and transparency from companies, a system of distributed governance and accountability, and finally, more collaborative research and innovation between researchers, technologists, policymakers, and of course, nonprofit advocates. We'd like to see more consumer pressure and government rulemaking that motivates and rewards tech companies that actually demonstrate operational transparency and invest in product design changes that create friction. Now, to support this vision, Amidyar Network has already committed over $10 million to better understand these platforms and how they work and where their design contributes to these problems. We have supported preserving privacy-respecting features, as well as advocating for necessary design, policy, and rule changes so that private messaging platforms are trustworthy. So, Rose, obviously, um, these changes and, and fixes that uh, Wafa is talking about these are roles for tech and government, but what, what are some of the things we can all do to make these private messaging platforms safer? Thanks, Elise. That's a, a great question because when it comes to the internet, uh, no single problem can be solved by a single actor. This isn't something that companies can address on their own or governments on its own. It involves organizations like my own that are doing independent research. It involves advocacy organizations lifting up the voices and perspectives of the most vulnerable in society affected by these issues and working with companies and government to make sure that the rules and standards that governments begin to set to make sure we have access to information and transparency and guidelines for how these platforms should responsibly operate in the world and the ways that companies address innovation and the problems that arise on their platforms are all uh, referential and working together. And that's something that I think of as a, a, a positive point for us to really consider is that we do have agency also in conversations with our families and our own communities uh, to address the issues moving forward. Well, as you say, obviously with some of these key changes and tools, but also personally responsibility, we can find a way to trust the technology companies and each other more, not just in the town square, as you guys say, but in the living room as well and protect our privacy at the same time. Wefa Ben-Hassin of Omidyar Network and Rose Jackson of the Atlanta Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Elise. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. And if you're just joining us, I'm Kat Sakreski. My next guest is Damian Collins, a member of the British Parliament and the co-founder of the International Grand Committee on Disinformation. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. And just before we get started, we have a quick di disclosure. A peer organization associated with the Omidyar Group provides some support for the logistics and convening of the IGC. The Omidyar Network, which is sponsoring this program, 
and the Omidyar group are founded by the same individuals. And now to jump in, we just heard a little bit from Congressman Heard about the risks of disinformation in the United States. How do you view the issue of disinformation comparing in the United Kingdom and Europe more broadly? Actually, before I, before I answer that, if I could just come in on the International Grand Committee, because um, you're quite right, so the, the network have supported some of the recent meetings, but the first meetings uh, came about uh, from a discussion I have with some Canadian members of Parliament at an event hosted by the Atlantic Council in Washington. And the first conversation about the idea of creating an International Grand Committee of Parliamentarians to cooperate on these issues actually took place at the Post pub in Washington. So uh, I think it seems particularly appropriate that we're discussing that on this uh, Washington Post Live uh, session today. That's wonderful. That's one of our, our favorite spots as, as Post reporters. And of course, looking to get back there once cases go down a bit here in DC. Um, and so on that point of international cooperation, I mean, certainly we've seen in the US how destructive disinformation can be. What can countries do to better partner to address this issue? Partnership is really important because I think what we're seeing in terms of tech regulation around the world is in a way a leveling up process. Relations between different parliaments to understand the different approaches being taken in legislation is very helpful in terms of understanding what we can do. The UK with the online safety bill will probably be the first country to establish a very broad based regulatory structure to ensure that what's illegal offline is regulated online and by an independent body. But there are similar approaches being taken in Australia, in the European Union. And I've been very interested to follow closely um, issues being raised by different members of Congress in America, looking at how uh, Section 230 could be reformed. I discussed with Senator Walter, uh, Warner his, um, his safe tech bill as well, which has got lots of very interesting ideas and in how you create exemptions from Section 230 for some of the most problematic areas. But on disinformation and election interference, it's particularly important because we know there are some common bad actors, state-sponsored organizations that are seeking to interfere in elections around the world and interfere in democracy. They're not even necessarily looking to persuade the world of a counter-narrative, but leave people in a position where they don't know what to believe. Now, I think if you'd had this debate a couple of years ago, it's inevitably seen as quite political, depending on your point of view or the arguments being raised. But I think what the COVID pandemic has demonstrated is just how dangerous disinformation can be in the context of public health, where, you know, where treatments of bogus treatments and anti-vaccine conspiracy theories are being promoted and they can have a, a real impact on public health. So it, it's, ever, it's increasingly important that we address these issues. Are there specific steps that have been taken in the United Kingdom to address health disinformation that US policymakers or the White House might be able to learn from? Well, we've been having this debate in the context of the proposed online safety bill and the report my joint committee uh, produced in December. And we feel that disinformation that has a clear adverse impact on public health should be something that the social media companies are held responsible for. That if they can see extensive networks of accounts that are disseminating uh, content that you know, would suggest a direct impact on negative impact on public health, you know, be that, say, you know, drinking bleach to cure to cure COVID, where someone could cause themselves severe harm, then we shouldn't say, well, this is a matter of free speech. This would 
clearly be a matter of considerable harm being inflicted on an individual, and therefore we should step in. I think there are also concerns around the, the, the breadth of opinions that people are exposed to. If the algorithms of social media have noticed that someone has taken an interest in conspiracy theories online, and therefore if they seek public health information, they're, they're, they're increasingly likely to see mostly conspiracy theories rather than public health information. I think you know, regulators should question the companies about that, the way they've designed their systems and the harm that could cause. And on that point about algorithms, this has been a topic that's gotten more attention uh, both in the US and in Europe um, following the revelations from Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen. Have her revelations, the documents she brought forward about the inner workings of the social network influenced the work that you're doing, um, particularly on the online safety bill? I mean, they were incredibly, uh, the work she's done was incredibly helpful to the work the Joint Committee did on the online safety bill. And in fact, uh, her first public appearance in Europe was giving evidence to the Joint Committee in Westminster. What she's demonstrated, I think, are two or three really important things. Firstly, that the companies do, or companies like Facebook, do a huge amount of internal research on the impact of those services. But those, those research documents are not publicly available. So Facebook researched the impact of Instagram on the, uh, on the mental health and levels of anxiety and depression amongst teenage girls who use the service, but highlighted amongst the research group, you know, I think between 20 and 30%, depending on UK and US, were suffering heightened levels of anxiety and depression. Well, shouldn't we get to know that too? Shouldn't independent regulators get to understand these are the impacts uh, that the service could have? And who gets to decide then what action is taken as a consequence? At the moment, these are only internal conversations that happen within a company like Facebook. And I think they should be challenged on the decisions they make, but we can only do that if we have access to the information that they have access to. And that's why in the online safety bill, the idea of empowering an independent regulator with the right to have access to data and information, documents from within companies, means we can see what they can see and we can understand the impact some of their services are having. So I think Frances Haugen's evidence really brought that home. The second thing I think she really uh, emphasized, emphasized when she gave evidence to the committee and in, in, in her public remarks elsewhere, is the fact that you know, we talk about the algorithm of a company like Facebook, and sometimes you know, it's extraordinary to hear you know, people like Nick Clegg say, well, you can have the algorithm or you can have no algorithm and just a load of spam, as if it's one thing or the other. Whereas when we talk about the algorithms, we're talking about thousands of data points. They can be changed. The data drawn uh, into the decision-making process can be changed. And, it, and what's more, Francis Haugen discussed, you know, that the company does that all the time. It, it changes the settings, it experiments. Um, and I thought it was very interesting in, in looking at how Facebook sought to act against disinformation during the uh, US presidential election. Um, but that, that had a negative impact on engagement with the platform. And so they, they, they changed it. They changed the settings for commercial reasons to make sure engagement stayed high and that mitigating harmful disinformation uh, was um, allowed because it was good for engagement on the platform. These sorts of decisions that the companies make you know, can have a big consequence on not just people's experience on those platforms, but in people's real world behaviors. And therefore, they need to be challenged and held to account on the decisions they make. But to do that, we need to understand that. At the moment, be it through the work Francis Haugen's done or a few, a few years ago on things like Cambridge Analytica, we are reliant on whistleblowers coming forward. We are reliant on evidence given to congressional and parliamentary hearings to give us insights and indeed the work of investigative journalists 
to give us insights into what's going on. But these companies' platforms affect our daily lives, and I think there needs to be far more scrutiny and accountability for the decisions they make. You talked about the need for an independent regulator to have access to the research that Facebook is doing internally to be able to see these issues without you know, necessarily having a whistleblower come forward. How do you envision that independent regulator working with other regulators abroad as countries from the United States to India are increasingly grappling with these problems? Well, I think the regulators sharing information and insights together will be really important. It's important as well that we're not reliant on self-declared transparency reports from the tech companies, which often even they themselves can't really explain what they mean. When they talk about, you know, they take down 90% of, you know, I think there's Facebook who say, and YouTube similarly, they remove around 90% of the content they remove uh, that's harmful content or hate speech, their own systems find rather than being reported to them. But that doesn't tell you how much hate speech there is. It just tells you that uh, of the quantity of hate speech they remove, 90% they find. It doesn't tell you whether that 90% is only a few percent. The Francis Haugen uh, documents showed that engineers at Facebook thought they were their AI was only removing 4 or 5% of hate speech. So if Facebook are removing 90% of 5%, it's not very impressive. But the companies can't discuss these things in public hearings. We questioned um, Antigone Davis, for example, from, from Facebook about this in front of the Joint Committee. And she wasn't in a position where she could answer these questions. And given the role she plays as global head of safety for the company, that's somewhat distressing. And that's why you know, it's important that independent regulators can have access to this. They can share uh, that information with other regulators around the world to improve policy making, to, to improve maybe the standardizing the powers regulatory bodies have. Um, and indeed, in data investigations, this is already starting to happen with, uh, with the information commissioner in the UK working with other information commissioner bodies or similar bodies elsewhere in the world. Um, I think there's, um, there's, I think the, our best hope with this is that actually with better regu regulation, better bodies uh, enforcing it, better international cooperation, we will understand the challenges better uh, and the enforcement that needs to be taken. And you mentioned the recent hearing you had with Antigone Davis. I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, we've seen here in the US just a series of these CEO hearings, most recently with the CEO of, uh, with the head, excuse me, of Instagram uh, prior to the holidays. Do you think that these repeated hearings with tech company executives are moving the needle at all? Well, I think the hearings um, do two, two things. Firstly, there's the kind of hearing, the day of the hearing itself. And the question that it has some great revelation been borne out, you know, has some, some new facts or information come forward. The hearings don't always do that. They sometimes do, but they don't always do that. But they, they are a process of holding tech execs to account and making them put on the record public statements for which they can be held to account in the future. And I think it's very interesting looking, again, going back to Washington, looking at the, the uh, District of Columbia's Attorney General's case against uh, Facebook, where he's probing for information around whether about what Mark Zuckerberg knew when about Cambridge Analytica, how involved was he in the discussions? Because when he gave evidence uh, to the Congress, he suggested he knew very little about this until the allegations were, were public and reported in The Guardian and The New York Times. So the, com the companies are committing on the record information for which they will be held to account in the future. And that is very helpful. And I think also it creates an environment where the companies can be challenged directly and repeatedly about what they know about certain issues, what steps they've taken to address certain issues. 
it's often staggering what they can't talk about. I mean, I, I, there was a report that we asked Antigone Davis about, which was a leaked report from within Facebook that was reported very widely uh, over, I think, a year or so ago, that said, uh, or about 18 months ago, actually, said, that said that um, of uh, extremist content um, groups in Germany, actually, that I think Facebook did a study on, and they showed that 60% of people that joined Facebook groups that were sharing extremist content did so at Facebook's recommendation. When I asked her about that, she, she said she wasn't cited on that, that report. So I think it's important they are challenged in this way and then held to account for the answers that they give. And what advice do you have for U.S. policymakers who have been holding hearings, debating these issues of tech policy increasingly? What advice do you have for them to actually move into the phase of, of legislating, of, of regulating these businesses? Well, I mean, there's some great work being done in Congress. I mentioned the work that Senator Mark Warner has been doing. Um, I've spoken on numerous occasions with Congressman Cicilline about the his antitrust committee report, which was... Uh, I think one of the best pieces of work that's been done uh, analyzing not just some of the safety issues around big tech, but some of the competition issues as well. It's always in parliaments, unless you've got an overwhelming majority, you've got to build consensus around reform as well. One of the things I was most pleased about with our uh, our joint committee report on the online safety bill was that it was unanimous. We had uh, the, the entire committee signed up for all the findings and recommendations. And I think that makes it much easier to take uh, measures forward, firstly, because there's a broad basis for support, but you're also showing to the tech uh, companies that there is, you know, there is strong political support across the divide to get certain things done. I think that makes them take the, the process of legislation and the, the the concept of regulation more seriously because they can see there's a there's a political will to achieve it. But I, and I think I think certainly in the UK, what is what has driven that process? I think is I think in Parliament we've seen a I feel like a swing away from from the tech companies in terms of the sympathy people have towards them, and that's because increasingly politicians are themselves uh, victims of abuse online. Uh, they've taken up cases on behalf of people they represent uh, and been frustrated at how little the tech companies will do to engage with those issues. And they look at big events that happen, be it um, you know the role of social media in the build up to sixth of January uh, insurrection last year, or indeed in the UK the huge amount of abuse received by um, by black players in the England football team after the European Championships final. And they say, well, why, why weren't the companies anticipating this? Why weren't they doing more? Why were they even actively pro promoting awareness of this abuse taking place? And I think it's that actual people's actually direct experience of trying to engage with the tech companies on this issue, which is leading them to a place where they think the companies will never do this on their own satisfactorily. We need to create proper structures now to get this done and to regulate the companies effectively. And I wanted to ask you too, one of the areas where we're seeing growing bipartisan consensus in the US is on child safety. And I know the UK recently implemented the age appropriate design code to protect children online. Um, now that you're a couple months into enforcement of that code, could you tell me you know, what the biggest changes have been for children online and what US policymakers can learn from it? Well, the interesting thing is that the companies have changed their policies to comply with the code. And I think this is this is a really important point because often people say, well, you know, can you make the companies change? Or is it even possible that they could change their systems to create a different experience for young users? So kind of where you say so you see, um, you know, for example, um, recommendation tools, um, things like autoplay 
being set is off by default or they're not gathering data around likes on Instagram for children. And there are a whole host of things that the companies have been required to do to comply with the code and they've done it. And they, they started off from a position of saying they, it couldn't be done and then it turned out it could be done. So when we look at other safety measures that will be important for not just children, but all users, I think that if the companies are required to do it, they will, they will change, they will put measures in place. The other question I get asked a lot, which is that these are big international businesses uh, headquartered in the United States. You know, how will legislation being passed in the UK affect them? Well, the answer is they have to comply with domestic laws for people that are accessing their services and content on their services from that country. And, and they then do have to, to, to move to comply. And I think on the whole, when the law is changed, the companies do try and comply with it. But we need the regulators to make sure that we know they are actually doing it. And I wanted to shift back to disinformation. We've talked a little bit about some of the issues around elections, around the pandemic, but there's also been increasing media coverage of climate misinformation recently. Do you think policymakers need to do more to put pressure on the companies to address climate misinformation? I think we. I think we. I think it's right that this is being raised now because we've seen with the the, the very fast emergence of. You know, of conspiracy networks like QAnon, and we've seen with, with anti-vaccine conspiracy networks, that these can get up and running really fast. And because of the, the if you like, the, the filter bubble experience of social media, it might be that in general, people see a mix of opinions, but quite large segments see a very narrow field of content. And that once you start engaging with, with disinformation around climate change, you know, you will only see more of it. So I think that's why having an independent regulator means you can you can challenge the companies on that. You can ask for data and reports uh, based on the experience of people in different audience segments on the company in the, within the company services. And what are they seeing? Are they seeing a preponderance of um, climate uh, uh, climate change disinformation and and expose that and seek to expose information about that and challenge the companies on what their policies are in that area. Of course, there is legitimate public debate around policy questions, and it's not the role of regulators or platforms to to turn off elements of that debate or, or cancel elements of that debate but i think the company should be challenged on it and certainly if there were incidents of you know that uh, those disinformation campaigns likely to lead to you know, credible threats of harm to, to, to citizens then that would be a very serious matter where you'd expect the regulators to intervene but i think i think what the regulators can do is expose whether people are being given a plurality of opinions people are being given information that'll help them challenge uh, uh, sort of climate change disinformation, you know, particularly people for whom that is the majority of their experience on that issue. And just looking broadly at disinformation online, talking about climate disinformation, health misinformation, political information, political disinformation, what, what are the stakes if as a society, as a global society, we can't contain this disinformation threat? Well, it's interesting it's on elections in particular, because one of, the, one of the failures here is a failure to translate existing laws and safeguards that we put in place to protect society, to protect democracy into the online world. So you know, if you take the Russians buying ads to target Americans in a presidential election, that's already an offence in American election law to use foreign money to buy ads to target Americans. The issue here was that um, there was no enforcement of it, and Facebook was under no obligation to to identify that threat or report that it was happening. Now, if that had been in other media, then, then that would have been the case. If that was a bank looking at suspicious financial transactions, 
it will be required to report that or it could lose its banking license. So there's a failure of regulation to keep up with technology and a failure to, to require standards of the tech companies that we've required elsewhere. And I think we need to look at, when we look at sort of disinformation around elections, particularly foreign interference, look at how we translate existing offences in law into the online environment. And that's why I think the Online Safety Bill is trying to do that uh, in the UK. And I, thought, and I think, you know, as an outsider looking into the, what's happened, the debate in America, I would think things like that would be, would represent a strong case for reform of Section 230 to say, where we've got clear, we've already determined that these are offences, and we've got those offences in place for good reason, to protect the integrity of our elections from foreign interference. What do we do to make sure that those, those can be enforced against the tech companies if they are failing to check whether someone's buying an ad in rubles? Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for the discussion today, and we'll have to leave things there. Damien Collins, thank you so much for joining us today at Post Live. It was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.